Hello and welcome to Bellhaven Podcast. I'm your host, Brent Weber. On today's episode, we'll be listening to PSY 352, Social Psychology with Professor Nathan Smith. I hope you listen and enjoy. So this brings us to the question, are there gender differences in our intrinsic relational nature? So, both males and females report that close, intimate bonds are more important than larger, collective bonds. And yet, men tend to emphasize larger group affiliations. So, this is a good example of two researchers, or two scholars, or in this case, uh, a lecturer and a book author, looking at the same piece of information and coming to a different outcome. So, the author of your text... um, These are her ideas that are presented here, that males and females report that close intimate bonds are more important than larger collective bonds, and yet men tend to emphasize larger group affiliations. So when I was looking at this, and I went back and looked at um, the study that was quoted here, uh, my interpretation of this is really, it's the answer is no, males and females report that close intimate bonds are more important than larger collective bonds. That's true. And to answer the question, are there gender differences, it's about 90% no, but if you're looking for something and you kind of keep digging through the study, you can find, (coughs) excuse me, there's this bit where men tend to emphasize larger group affiliations more. Um, So that's, it's true what's being presented here, and true what she says in the text, but my take on it is, um, it's about 90% no. Really, the, the differences on this are very small. And really, um, this intrinsic relational nature is human and is common to both men and women by and large, with some slight differences, um, including the one noted here. So a Christian view of our intrinsic relational nature. So <clears throat> it is for survival, yes, but also more for many people. An integral part of our created being and to take to partake in redemptive community and this is uh, this is something that I like to think of it as uh, if any of you are actors uh, or have participated in improvisational acting where you're making up a scene on the spot there's this concept of improv um, that's called yes and where if there's multiple people in the scene one person is doing something, you want to take that on and add to it. So yes and is the kind of rallying cry for that. Somebody starts a scene where you're riding bikes together, you say riding bikes is great and I love to be here in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. So yes and. And and this is kind of a way that uh, Christian scholars differ in that we have kind of a yes and approach, or we should have kind of a yes and approach to all of these questions. So, is, is intrinsic relational nature for survival? Yes. And it's also an integral part of our created being. Yes, and it's also to partake in redemptive community. So, uh, as we go through, you might, you might find the yes and concept useful to you, particularly as you think about things uh, in this course in a Christian context. The self in action, how we present ourselves to others. 
so this is a series of uh, self-centered um, concepts that you should be familiar with. We'll go through them with brief examples. The self-serving bias. I accept credit for success but blame failure on others or situations. This is very, very common. Uh, and it's, it's actually really easy to see in a school setting. I think the, the author uses this example, but it's pretty standard. Uh, if you have a test where everybody does poorly, then they'll all say, well, you know, this test was unfair, you didn't prepare us for it, we didn't have the information we needed. But if this, in the same class two weeks later, if there's a test where everybody does well, they'll say, man, what good scholars we are. We studied so hard for this. So in the case where you do poorly, you put it off onto somebody else, the professor or the book or something else. And in the case where you do well, you say, well, you know, I studied really hard for this, I'm really good at this subject, etc. So there's a self-serving bias present in all of us. False uniqueness. I've been using a lot of junior high and high school examples here, and I think some of these, some of these self-serving biases are so obvious in junior hires and high schoolers, uh, and really as people uh, become adults and uh, become older adults, 25, 30, 35. I don't know if they, um, I don't know if this goes away or you just become better at hiding it. I guess that's a research question that would be interesting. But false uniqueness. My situation is really unique. If you've ever sat in a junior high class, um, I presented in a high school class recently and gave an example of something and everybody had their hand up to give their own example all of which were very similar to my examples and very similar to all of the examples given before. So this kind of false uniqueness uh, is in all of us and very, very apparent, um, particularly in that setting. But really, my suspicion is we just kind of get better at hiding it and not being so blatant about it, but it's always in us. And then unrealistic optimism and defensive pessimism. Great things are going to happen for me regardless. Another one that might be uh, might be more common in a junior high or high school setting, or at least I don't want to say more common because I think it's happening all the time everywhere, but easier to see in those contexts. Everybody's going to be a star athlete or, I mean, well, my wife's fifth grade class, she had to tell them that you, you're not allowed to say that you're going to be a star athlete when you grow up because the class is full of star athletes. And... Uh, the data just doesn't support that. So she said you had to do something, including college. So you could say, I'm going to be a college athlete. So all of her folks who said that they were going to be star athletes now say they're going to be college athletes. So I guess she's making some progress there. So this is this unrealistic optimism. False consensus. Everyone agrees with me. Um, man, this is really common around politics. Um, or political issues. You'll have somebody get going on some subject only to find out after lecturing for five or ten minutes that the person they're talking to is on the exact opposite position. And this happens in, in Christian circles too. You think that all Christians have the same opinions on the same issues and you find out maybe the more you travel, um, the more Christians you talk to from different parts of the country or parts of the world or different backgrounds that actually that consensus you had 
in your small town church, uh, you don't actually have, even though uh, Christians of goodwill are around you, they may not always agree with you. And then with the overconfidence effect, pretty straightforward. More confident than correct. The self-reference effect, I remember things better if they are associated with me. This is actually a good way to remember concepts like this. Uh, it's, a, it's a good thing to know for studying. Um, if you come up with an example for each of these that has to do with some event in your own life, it'll be easier for you to remember than uh, if you come up with something that's more abstract or aside from yourself. So, uh, that's just a tip on studying. And that's one of the reasons we're going to look at macro, micro, and personal examples is because uh, the personal examples are going to make these concepts more real for you and make them easier to remember and to implement as you go on through your life. And then the imagining. The imaginary audience slash spotlight effect. Really, for me, this is the Truman Show effect. Uh, since that movie came out, gosh, probably, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, who knows, a long time ago. But it's a movie where that takes that, I mean, this imaginary audience effect is really common in junior hires, but uh, it's a movie that takes that um, and really makes it real. This, this idea that everybody else is looking at you and as focused on you as you are, um, which of course is not true, but the, the fun of the Truman Show is that it makes it true. So, belief perseverance, despite contrary evidence. This, uh, this concept is a very big uh, public health problem uh, because people learn things and then they hold on to them forever and it's very hard to teach them new things. So you have some concepts like uh, you shouldn't swim until 30 minutes after you have eaten. Maybe you've heard that before. And I'm not sure what it was based on and when it came out, maybe the 50s or something, maybe the 60s. But my understanding is that there's no evidence that it's true, and yet people have been being told it or told it by other folks for 50, 60 years in America, uh, despite the fact that it actually isn't true and there's no reason uh, for it to spend time and effort on it. So if you do go into public health, uh, or if you do uh, go into counseling, this is something you're going to deal with a lot because the people you run into will already have beliefs that they hold on to strongly and some of those beliefs are going to be wrong and unhealthy for them and moving them past those beliefs uh, is going to be one of the main challenges of your work. And then the better than average effect uh, comparison with others. This is a real easy one. So about 90% of the world believes that they are above average drivers and that, of course, means that about 40% of those people are wrong. And this is something you find in all sorts of things, but really the driving example is a good one. Everybody thinks they're above average driver, you know, almost everybody. And that just can't be the case. That's not how numbers work. So that's the better than average effect. And finally, our self-serving tendencies universal. Well, uh, just like self... Um, self-esteem, we find that Westerners are more self-aggrandizing than our non-Westerners, just as we find that they have higher self-esteem. But then the research does show that people everywhere seek to look good on factors their culture deems important. And this is uh, something that's sort of strange, is that, you know, you don't really know what a culture deems important necessarily until you've been there. 
I remember distinctly when I was in Japan, uh, one of my good friends, Christy, her students would always tell her, uh, Sensei, you have a very small face. And she didn't really know what to make of that. She didn't know that what having a small face really had to do with anything. We learned over time that in, in Japanese beauty standards, having a small face is something that is uh, <coughs> looked upon as positive, looked upon as attractive. So they were complimenting Christy on how small her face was. Uh, although, you know, through her growing up in Canada and everything else, uh, she uh, had no idea that that was a good thing and no idea that it would be looked on as particularly beautiful when she got to Japan. Uh, but there you have it, cultures have particular things that they deem as important, and um, you can get compliments that you don't even know are compliments.